0: who uh, was a daily devotion man, a man who lived his life by the Word of God, and at 54, he had just what I had last Friday, that that standard kind of yearly checkup, that yearly checkup with the doctor. And during that checkup, the doctor noticed a lesion on him and, and said, you know, can I, let me just take a little bit from that, let me... Test that uh, just to make sure everything's okay. A short time later, the man was called into the doctor's office and it was suggested that he also bring his wife. And so, 10 days later, they find themselves back in the doctor's office and the doctor is revealing to him that he has cancer. And that the form of this cancer, the malignant form of this cancer, is really a kind of cancer there is no real treatment for, only experimental kinds of treatments. And that he would have probably 9 to 12 months to live. And in hearing this news, him and his wife, quietly after a few questions got up, out of the doctor's office and left. And the first thing they did is they embraced. And they both started to cry. And he said, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed about God. Nothing has changed about the God I believed in yesterday when I did not know that I had this death sentence of a cancer in Nothing has changed about him here today. And he did end up dying, this man, 12 months later. And he held fast the entire time because he had the right perspective, the right understanding of the wilderness of life. That a mortal diagnosis didn't mean that God stopped loving him. Charles Spurgeon once remarked, if we cannot believe God when circumstances seem to be against us, we do not believe Him at all. It's a great quote. Let me repeat that. If we cannot believe God when circumstances seem to be against us, we do not believe Him at all. Even observable science tells us pressure rightly applied can produce a diamond. And yet for the third time in as many weeks at this pulpit, we're looking at the word of God and we find a grumbling people in our passage today. And so it's safe to say a theme is developing in this wilderness path God has prepared for this congregation of Israel. His people are seemingly always finding a new problem, a new drama, in which they show their utter lack of trust in God and give in to grumbling. As the people of God have moved past that first wilderness of sin into this new wilderness of Rephidim, but yet this Rephidim is another place in which seemingly there is no easy water to drink. And as absurd as it seems, the people who have now been now have the presence of God around them at all hours, by day and by night, manna in the mornings, quail in the evenings, yet again they begin to grumble. Has there been something, though, while we see grumbling for three weeks, has there been something that you've been grumbling about, maybe for weeks, and I've been grumbling about maybe for weeks, or maybe months, or maybe years on end? Or maybe you're the Stoic type. You don't, you don't audibilize it, but that doesn't prevent you from rumbling in your heart. And when we do those sorts of things, when we walk this Christian life in such a way, what we are doing is showing our utter lack of faithfulness towards the God who knows the thoughts upon our hearts and minds and all, everything that we do and say. But also remember that this world we live in is a wilderness journey that God has set our course on. And so, this people, who had already earlier called on God with this very question, and God answered in a remarkable way, whether or not God would give them drinkable water, they've now fallen into that sinful pattern of disobedience Yet again, in one sense, they too are an illustration of nothing has changed. They are doubting God once more. And the irony of how their complaint de- develops in the Hebrew is that in this second time, a complaining about water is that this complaint in the Hebrew, as theologians have often pointed out, is a le- of a legal charge, it's of a legal variety. God is on trial in the minds of this congregation. The word that the ESV translates as quarrel is really a legal term in the Hebrew. So you practically understand what's going on here. It's as if God's been served in a legal sense. God's been notified of a legal action of hostility against him. More on the specific charges against God in a moment. But Moses understands what's going on here. He can't believe this people are now trying to put the North, their God, to the test, he says. And how did they get here? How did we get here with God on trial? I think it's fair to say that in this early wilderness period, the people of God have shown very little heroism, very little bravery. I I would be willing to call it an infantile kind of maturity in the faith, and yet I I think that would be too insulting to infants. When when an infant cries for milk, when an infant cries for nourishment, it's uh, of likely a different kind of motive motive than this rational, what they come to uh, as a conclusion in their own time of complaint and cries out to God. Charging him with crimes. The people have convinced themselves that God will never give them water again. And I don't believe even an infant is capable of convincing themselves of that. And maybe you think I'm exaggerating. I just want to make a good point. But all we need to do is look at verse 3. At the congregation of the Lord, at the charges they are bringing against God. The congregation of Israel in here is claiming that God is scheming to kill them, or God is scheming to murder them in one sense. Not only have they put God on trial, but their trial is that God wants to kill them. That's a serious charge. Imagine if you knew two parties very well, and one walked up to you and claimed that, that this other individual, that what you've known of them has been uh, loving and upstanding and noble and good that, that they're saying that this other party is trying to murder them. And, it, and none of that fits with the character or quality of the person, and yet a charge like this needs to be soberly considered. How would that hit us in such a moment with maybe our closest friends or family members? It would hit us hard. It would hit anybody incredibly hard. And here are God's people claiming that about God. Being careless about their words. Of all the murmurings we've heard thus far in the wilderness, this moment is uniquely wicked. And it's actually the second time this has been suggested that God is trying to kill them. If you go back one chapter, also in verse 3, they had a similar kind of murmuring as well but it hits a little differently this time because now they want to put God on trial for how He's treating them because they failed to learn in hardship that the Christian walk is a walk where we remember nothing has changed about God's love for us. This passage is inviting us in this moment to recognize and to appreciate just how ungrateful and lacking of trust, we as God's people can be when it comes to how He arranges our lives. I mean, even though we've, we've never said it before, I am sure all of us maybe we've never said it out loud have been put in situations in life where we just we've cried out to God in great hostility about the situation of. Of great anger. God, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you trying to kill me? That's an aspect of what's going on here. And Moses is fully aware of what these people are saying and the charges and accusations they're bringing before God. And so Moses now cries out to God, what shall I do about these people? But he also adds, they are almost ready to stone me. They've so convinced themselves that God's trying to kill them, that the people are also considering the killing of the messenger that God sent in Moses, who God used as an instrument of the redemption. So along with the people forgetting all that God has now done for them, in their rage, it now extends to Moses himself as well. They not only hate God, but they hate the one who God sent to them. They want God on trial, and they want someone to die. They want the instrument God has used in order to save them from slavery to die. Even though Moses loves this people and has passionately sought to bring this people to a new and better promised land, they care not. They want him dead. And if you're following him along, We'll get into this a little bit later, a little more, but does that sound like any other moment in Scripture? A trial where a humble servant of God hears cries from a mob of people who want him dead? And yet God will intervene on Moses' behalf in order that Moses need not lose his life at the hands of the nation he served because really their ultimate problem wasn't with Moses, it was with God. They hate God in this moment. They have convinced themselves that God is a murderous killer, that he is unkind to them and, ev- and, and desires evil against them. And so God instructs Moses of what to do next. And what Moses is going to be asked is to put God on trial. The people want a judgment, the people want a ruling. And they are willing to kill to make it happen. And so God will give them what they want. And I just have to stop here and say, here's this book about God's people. While we don't think about it enough, this very generation will be the first generation that will start to have their fingerprints upon the pages of the story of this book. And on some of those pages are their story. Their story of falling into sin. Their story of grumbling their story of rebellion, their story of, 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 of just utter defiance against God. And then this story will be passed from generation to generation to generation. More will be added to it, but every generation that adds to it will we'll admit at times when they add to it, we've, we've been a part of the problem. Unfortunately, there are times in our lives that nothing has changed for us spiritually. Nothing has changed for us in terms of righteousness, and yet there's still an, another message that the Scripture has for us, and it's that nothing has changed about God's love for His people. You know, we live in a privatized American society that often will tell the lies lie of my, sin, my sins are just between me and God, God and myself. That is a lie. This passage helps tell us that's a lie. There is a reality in which God uses sin in order to show us both his love, but also how desperately, how often we rebel against him and how desperately we need him. And so these people would have read these words and they would have said, we did want to kill Moses that morning. We did doubt that God would still be good to us. We did want to put God on trial. And God had no problem candidly exposing sin. And so as the passage continues in verse 5, God arranges for this trial to take place. First, the trial will begin with a procession before the people of God. And in the procession, first will be the staff of God, the rod of God, and Moses carrying it. And Moses will also bring along with him some elders. Now, elders will be more clearly established in the next chapter, chapter 18. And we will find out in that chapter uh, a lot about uh, what I'm about to tell you. Part of what elders are is they are to be judges over certain matters of the congregation, especially spiritual matters. Yeah. And so here, in one sense, is the Ron, here is the prophet, and here is a collection of judges. These elders are, are elders of rule, but also they are going to serve in this trial as judicial witnesses, on this significant matter, on this significant charge of evil against God. We see this, for example, in the book of Ruth. Uh, it, when Boaz desires to create resolution between Naomi and, and Ruth and the estate, he goes to the elders in chapter 4 in order to bring resolution. Here in Exodus 17, this is the first time elders are called to Participate in one sense in a trial. And yet, who will be the one judged in the trial? It should be, if justice was prevailing, the mob of bloodthirsty people who desire to kill Moses and apply God Himself was a murderer. But who will be judged? We learn who will be judged by something said in verse 6. God says something in this verse, He says nowhere else throughout all of Scripture. You could scour this Bible for the rest of your days. You would never find a verse that says something like this. A verse where it is worded like Exodus 17.6. This is the one time God audibly states, I will stand before you. I will stand before you. Basically, I will allow myself to be put on trial at this rock of horror. And God means in this moment, this moment is, is that, and, and into the language that God is actually going to have a manifest presence in this moment as he stands trial. Even I've been following along and, and, and using as a supplement a Jewish commentary throughout this series. Even the Jewish commentary points out that there is some human-like appearance of God that will come to this trial that is tied up into the wording here in verse 6. God is basically saying, I've heard the charges, I've heard the claims, I've heard that I'm awful, I'm a murderous God who doesn't care about His people, I've heard the desires of this wicked people, who wanted to kill the one in whom I sent in order to give them redemption. I've heard it all, each and every sin, and I'm willing to submit myself to be judged by you. I'm willing to go before the elders. I'm willing to face a trial for the good of this people. And I'm going to stand on a rock, Moses. And when I go before you and stand trial as I stand there on that rock, you shall take that rod of judgment and come down upon the rock. And when you do, Moses, water will come out of it, and the people will drink. I can't imagine what must have been going through Moses' head right before he struck the rock with the same staff that he had so powerfully judged the Egyptians with. This is what is the last time Moses will strike the staff against something in the book of Exodus. It will also be the last time Moses strikes the staff against something in a way God considers it righteous. For the next time Moses will use the staff to strike something, God will not be pleased. Thus far, this is the staff that saw Moses saw turn into a serpent and eat all other serpents. This is the staff that Moses saw turn the Nile into blood. This is the staff that God used to overwhelm Egypt with frogs. This is the staff which God used to overwhelm Egypt with bugs from the ground that kept biting the Egyptian people. This is the staff that sent thunder. This is the staff that sent hail and fire down upon the earth. This is the staff that brought locusts. This is the staff that split the seas and judged God's enemies at the Red Sea. This is the staff that allowed God's people to be rescued. This staff has been shown to do a great many mighty works, both of salvation and judgment. And now God is telling Moses in front of the elders of Israel, take That same staff and judge me. I'll stand before you on the rock and you strike that rock, Moses, and you judge me. And if you think I'm getting too allegorical here, if you think uh, I've just like, I've, I've totally missed it, understand this. When the Apostle Paul will write the first book to the Corinthians in chapter 10, verse 4 he will associate this rod with Christ. And that the truer sense of what's going on here is that in the judgment of Christ, we now have an access to water, a spiritual water, a heavenly water in which we can drink from and be sustained by in the wildernesses of our own life. So this is a biblical idea to associate this rod. With Christ. And so Moses hits the rock. The prophet who would be the giver of the law strikes the rock upon which God stands in judgment. A God who is not guilty in the slightest of breaking the, his law has been accused of breaking his law. And this all happens in the presence of Israel's elders, and they watch it happen. And a life-saving water begins to flow from this moment of judgment. God needed to go on trial in order for water to flow from the rock that could save the dying people in life's wildernesses. And at this point, it's safe to say if you're following along, you're already realizing that while the, the wording and the technical wording of verse 6 never appears in the Bible again, this same scene in a far more real, in a far more visceral way, real way, happens at the moment of Jesus' judgment and sentence to death in the Passion. Because it was there in the midst of all of Israel's Israel's elders as they joined in and helped inspire the crowd. God's one and only Son, His perfect representative, His perfect messenger, His perfect redeemer, His perfect savior, His sinless one, was charged guilty by the people. They shouted, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. There was was an actual trial in which there was an actual murderer, and an actual murderer was offered up instead, instead of Jesus. But no, they wanted God's one and only son dead instead. And the elders had, had previously stated to the trial that if they didn't kill this man named Jesus, the whole nation would perish. They were busy orchestrating the greatest cosmic injustice existence will ever see. And God stood there. And God allowed Himself to be charged with breaking the law of God even though no fault could be found in this man. Even the Romans could see that. And He was allowed to die. He was allowed to die. And yet in Christ's death, in the unjust judgment, falling upon God. Do you realize what that meant for us, Christian? Because don't we all live on a physical rock suspended in vast and the vast emptiness of space and a universe with a size that is in, unimaginable? And in this world, we have trials, we have temptations, and we often can grumble and criticize God and take him for granted. And yet God blesses us on this rock. And this rock is unique, not because of a chemical compound of H2O, but because God has set His love upon this rock. And He stood upon its land, and He desires the healing for the entire world. He allowed Himself to be judged for this rock and His people who live upon it. And so His provision comes. We don't just have a people who continue to struggle in the wilderness. We have a people who refuse to trust God's provision in the wilderness. They fail to recognize that nothing has changed about the love of God that He has uniquely set upon His people. He remains a God who has been given for us, who has provided for us, who sustains us, who makes sure we have our basic needs met. He also gives us a time where his plans are unclear. We despair in those plans and we worry and we convince ourselves in those moments God's got it all wrong and we want to put God on trial in our own ways, in our own even subtle ways. Let me show you how subtle this can be. Have you complained lately, for instance, about the prices of foods at supermarkets? Have you complained lately about the squandering of the American inheritance, where we're headed politically, where we're headed theologically, where we're headed uh, in in so many avenues of public discourse. Have you you lamented the fact that upon our continent, North America, more and more it is becoming common to legislate and to argue that being a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, who believes on the Word of God, that that is a hate crime. Have you lamented about these things? We grumbled about these things. We have to be very careful to walk that line in wisdom because we can carry that too far. We can carry the despair too far because this is the present wilderness that Christ has brought us to. This is the time and this is the hour in which we have been appointed to live. This is the situation we've been called to live. And yet, that nothing has changed in regards to God and His relationship to us. Even as the whole world changes, even as we see utter madness in the public square and, and things that we thought would never be true of this place that we live in have become more and more true. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned us or that we have permission to to doubt God and what He's doing in our lives. So what are the kinds of things that we are blaming God for in our lives? What are the kinds of things that we're getting angry about but that God hasn't allowed to take place? And yet, that's not really the right place to end. Well, it's a very important question to ask Realize this in this moment of the squirrel and testing at Massa and Meribah that while Israel was most wicked towards God, ultimate judgment didn't fall upon those who were God's people no rather in this moment the judgment fell upon God himself because nothing's changed about God's ultimate plan it's it's been the same since he told our first parents, Adam and Eve. It's, it's the same plan that he told the patriarchs. And, and even though we saw in the early half of Exodus that Pharaoh tried all, with all his might to thwart God's plan, and now as we reach the wilderness, we see the people try to thwart God's plan. God is relentless in his love. He's relentless in his mercy. He's relentless in His pursuit of His people, even when they sin against Him, even when they betray Him, even when they commit essentially spiritual adultery against Him, even when they charge Him with murder, even when they claim He's a killer, even if they want to kill His prophet. God remains true and steadfast in His love for us. And so what we've learned in these last weeks is how despite God's people frequently deciding to mutiny against God, and we are numbered in that people, even though we at times persist in faithless grumbling, God still preserves us in faithful grace. God allowed himself to be drudged for our regular failings to honor God, the God, and his law. God and his law of us. Or another more simply stated way to put it, even though we try and convince ourselves that the status of God's love has changed for us in certain moments of our life when he radically shifts where we are in and, and we, we, we try to believe that we somehow have fallen out of God's favor, the truth is, at the end of the day, nothing has changed. God passionately loves us. The trial he endured because of our sin and for our salvation has undoubtedly proven that. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the fact that you are a God passionate about saving us even though we often have little passion when it comes to you. even though at times we would rather boldly cry out in anger than in love. You were the God who stood in the gap. You are the God who allowed yourself to be put on trial and declared guilty even though you had not sinned. And you allowed the rod of judgment to fall down upon you. And yet through that cosmic injustice, through the beauty of your gospel-saving plan. What is, in one sense, the most evil and wicked thing eternity will ever see happen and occur, it is also the most beautiful, the most glorious thing, because you did it to both please the Father, but also you laid down your life for us, your bride. We thank you for that gift in Jesus name. Amen. Now let us take a moment quietly and privately to confess those times of grumbling and sin in our own minds before him.